Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the letter of 2 Peter. We're going to pick up in 2 Peter this morning, see if it's still there in your New Testament. Uh, we started, you remember it was March 1 that we opened 2 Peter together, and then three weeks later, we were uh, worshiping privately under circumstances that none of us would have ever predicted um, or even dreamed of before. Um, so we hit pause on 2 Peter for a little while. I think it's time that we work through the rest of this little-known letter. So Jude and 2 Peter, not only do they share so much of the same language, but they are probably two letters that receive the least attention, um, certainly in the New Testament canon. So kind of which came first, the chicken or the egg? Did Peter use Jude's language? Did Jude use uh, Peter's letter? Uh, no shortage of debate there. But I'm more convinced that Peter actually used Jude's language, especially in chapter 2, like we're going to read today, uh, but from a different angle, different perspective uh, in providing warning and assurance to the church. Uh, so the end of chapter 1, you may recall, again, these chapters are there for, for our sake, navigating through God's Word. They're not part of the original inspired text. But Peter reminds the church why they can trust his witness. Reminds them of the, of the prophetic word that has been given to them. Um, but beginning in chapter 2, it goes right in there, that there is a false witness, a word that uh, they should not trust. So he's making this contrast. Um, it's going to demand great discernment on God's people, recognizing uh, the word. So we're going to pick up in chapter 2, and I'll read uh, through the first half of verse 10. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if He did not spare the ancient world, but preserve Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when He brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, He condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if He rescued Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority." We are going to end our reading this morning in the middle of that verse. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Our great God, we are grateful that You meet us here, that You have gathered us and You are present with us. Even in these moments, Lord Jesus, You are shepherding us, going before us, feeding us through Your Word. We ask, Lord, that Your Word would accomplish its purpose in our hearts on this morning. You have promised that You would work uh, this Word to completion. 
And Lord, we need Your help. We need Your Holy Spirit to guide our understanding in applying this Word now. And so we ask that You would draw near, that You would speak mightily to us, make us attentive, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. We spent most of one of our mornings at the basic chaplain course that I was a part of last month, most of one morning going over a survey that we had each taken about our own behavioral traits. So something a little different than the Myers-Briggs personality test or a DISC assessment or something like that. But this was natural behavioral traits, how you make decisions, uh, you know, where, how do you communicate, what do you have energy for. Uh, as it turns out, I am rather conflict-averse. I don't like conflict. I don't like, I don't look for it. I don't feed off of conflict. Um, I don't spend a lot of time on social media and maybe, maybe that's one of the reasons for that. Um, but I don't like it. I'm more, I'm more comfortable in that you know, sort of cooperative, friendly, unassuming atmosphere where I have very few enemies. And that can be a great blessing and a great challenge as an under-shepherd in the church. So keep... Keep praying, because wherever there are sin-scarred people like me, and like you, there will be conflict of some sort. Um, There are different types of conflicts. Um, There may be conflicts over roles. Uh, Who has, who does what and when, what responsibilities that we have. There is structural conflict how things are set up, interpersonal conflict. There's just something about that person that rubs you the wrong way. But the most challenging type of conflict, conflicts that are the hardest to work through, are ideological conflicts. You hear the word there, you hear ideas. This is when our core beliefs just don't line up with someone else's. And it's these beliefs that determine what it is we value, what it is we're, we're willing to fight for, what hills we will or will not die on. It's interesting, I didn't have many spiritual or theological conversations when I was around a bunch of chaplains um, who are endorsed to be spiritual leaders. You will likely not have many of these types of conversations this week outside of your immediate family or context. Why? Because so much of our differences are ideological. There's potential for deep disagreement and conflict. Um, And I don't like that, but at times there are hills worth dying on. Um, There are these ideological conflicts that, that must be had for the purity, the peace of the church, for the faithfulness of the church, going about the mission of making disciples. Uh, maybe you followed the actions of, of Grace Community Church uh, out in California these last few weeks. John MacArthur has been the lead teaching pastor there for over 50 years now. And let me tell you, if there is a man who has stepped into ideological conflict over the years, it is him, along with many others. Um, standing upon the truth of God's Word. And not, not every faithful body of believers is going to, to choose, or at least have to choose, uh, the hill that they are fighting on at this moment in time. But I will say, um, most Bible-believing Orthodox churches have their eyes on what's happening out there and how that conflict um, will be resolved. But in this, in this last letter to the church here, Peter is addressing a very real threat 
to the unity and the peace of the church, a threat that may very well generate conflict, a hill worth dying on, a conflict that must be worked through for the glory of Christ. We're going to follow the way of truth. I think that is certainly a threat that remains alive and well in the church today. Again, we read much of the same language in Jude, but in Jude's case, the opposition, the intruders in the church are coming from outside. In Peter's case, so much of this opposition is coming from within the church. So the the folks in the pews, specifically leadership positions, those who are denying the Lord Jesus by their ideas and a lifestyle that naturally comes from those ideas. So we're going to ask two simple questions as we listen to Peter's warning here. Who are they and what's going to happen? Next week we'll we'll do some more comparison on how how to identify uh, these false leaders and teachers, but today just those, those questions. Who are they? What's going to happen? These false teachers, they're likened to the false prophets of old. Let me read from Deuteronomy 13. It says, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, Let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So Israel needed to be aware of testing the prophets in their midst. Lord Jesus, very clear in Matthew 24, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And what the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians 2, almost a parallel with what we have here in 2 Peter 2. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. So this isn't a new thing in the life of God's people. It can actually be expected. Expected, though not easy to identify uh, in the church. Wolves in sheep's clothing, Paul would say in, in Acts 20. They're not wearing t-shirts that say you know, false teacher on them. They're crafty and usually very skilled. This is so interesting here. These are are convincing, smooth talkers. And yet undermining the truth of God's Word. Their their lifestyle bears fruit of this. You Star Wars fans know the Millennium Falcon um, and what the Millennium Falcon is used for. How did Han Solo use this? He used it as a, a smuggling ship. There's compartments. You can walk around the Millennium Falcon and not even see where he hides other weapons or people or creatures. These leaders, they come across as very competent leaders, are smuggling in bad ideas. So bad, they they will even deny the sufficient and saving power of Jesus Christ. That's how they arrive. And the impact is evident by their, their lifestyle, how easy it is to follow. It is hard to turn down a message of prosperity. It says that if you acknowledge Jesus, then you're sure to stay healthy. Or He's just going to shower you with material wealth that you want for nothing. And that job, that promotion, that relationship that you're looking forward to will just wait on that. 
It's coming your way. Oh, oh, and by the way, just keep giving to the messenger. Or another message that says, you can be a fan of Jesus. You can use that language, affirm that, that Christian lingo, but you don't have to deny your sexual longings, appetite. That's, that's the way you are. God wants you to be happy. A licentious lifestyle is very attractive because it has a direct appeal to, our, to the lust of our hearts. So it shouldn't surprise us then that these false teachers who are bringing, bringing in ideas who have left that way of truth will often have large groups of followers. I'm not trying to insinuate here that every mega church is led by a charismatic false teacher. Um, it doesn't hold true in every situation. There's more here than just the number of people. But when we see a church or a movement that's many thousands of people and it's growing in the decadent culture in which we live, it should be cause for pause. What are they teaching? What are they promoting? What are they after? How do they presume to get that? Put it in slightly different words here. People are very willing to sign up for for something where, where belief is confusing and diverse and behavior is not accountable. You'll, you'll see that type of group where belief, belief is confusing, diverse belief, no accountability, that group will, will grow quickly. The much smaller groups are those where belief is clearly defined and behavior is accountable. So these teachers have their own creative message. Uh, that blasphemes the way of truth, the way of beauty and goodness uh, that they follow after. Um, there's a movement called the Last Reformation Movement. Just one example here. It started in, in 2011 by a Danish man, uh, Torben Sindergaard. Maybe you've heard of this. But he claims that the Lord has appeared to him and said that he was responsible for rebuilding the church uh, using the model that we have in Acts. So Acts is is really their only source of doctrine and, and belief and practice. Um, he's moved from, uh, from Europe and has now set up this Jesus Center in North Carolina called the Ark, where you can go and you can receive instruction on how to cast out demons and how to heal the sick. Um, and he really pushes that it's only by, after a baptism of immersion, can you um, live in perfect holiness here on earth. And there's a lot more that goes into that. Um, that's not the way of truth. It, it appeals. It's very appealing. It appeals to our own self-righteousness. And a lifestyle that makes Christianity a tool that will serve us or that serves this leader particularly well. Um, could give more examples of that. But subtle, creative message. A lifestyle that's appealing. And there's something else that happens here for those outside the church who are looking in and they see Christians pursuing their own self-interest, maybe the same sexual freedom that they enjoy, what do they do? They laugh. Or they ignore the church. Or they say those Christians are just a bunch of hypocrites. Right? They're wearing masks. They're saying one thing over here and they're doing something completely different over here. There's no distinction. And so the church ends up blaspheming the name of God, maligning the way of truth. 
And that just makes it all the much, all the more easier. Is that right? All the more easy? The more easy? <laughs> um, to ignore the church. Romans 2, Paul quotes the prophet Isaiah saying that the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because the church is boasting in the law and breaking the law all at the same time. So before we look at what's going to happen with these false teachers, I I think it's important for us to remember just how far uh, human autonomy from God can really lead us. It leads us to the very rejection of God, the rejection of the gospel of His grace in Jesus Christ. God is not just one way to happiness and to peace. God's Word is not just a suggestion on how to live and what it is to to value in life. If that's true in our hearts and minds, then we're still comfortably in the driver's seat. I hope we see this, that we're actually keeping ourselves on the throne. When we say, you know, sure, I will cry out to God if I think He can help me. Or when I'm in real trouble. And He may in His kindness and mercy provide in very unexpected ways. But it still is an autonomous, even idolatrous response. We are created and called to trust Him. To worship Him. Rejoice in Him. Wait on Him, giving thanks at all times because He knows us and loves us more than we could possibly imagine. He has redeemed us, restored to Himself. So, church family, let's, let's be watchful. The message may sound rather convincing. The leaders, very skilled and attractive, well-spoken. The appetites of the world alluring. You think, why, why are bugs drawn to the flame or to that bug zapper? And then to confuse them, draw them in, and so it is with our sin. We let our guard down. If we are not killing our sin, it is killing us, as John Owen so wisely warned. So we guard against false teaching and the allure of this lifestyle by constantly growing in our understanding of the true gospel, applying that gospel. But we do need to see what's going to happen here with the false teachers who are smuggling these ideas. Uh, into the church, ends up denying the very rule of Christ. Peter summarizes with this parallel in verse 3. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. I used to carry around one of those big planners, the Stephen Covey planner, and now I don't carry around the planner, I just use my phone as the planner. My calendar's on there, and I can write my appointments and training and other recurring meetings, and I can do that months in advance. But if I open up my phone and go to that calendar right now and to today, I'm not going to see those other meetings. I'm not going to see those other events that I've planned. Judgment upon these false teachers, every deceptive word will be exposed. It's planned out. It is on God's calendar, even though we may not see it today. And this judgment of God, it's, this is not something that is in question in the Bible, Old Testament or New Testament. It's the time frame that we really question. When is this going to happen? And so we pray with the psalmist that it would happen sooner or later, that God's justice would, would reign. We close our, our day with John's you know, the revelation given to John, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We don't know that day or the hour. 
But we do know that a God who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, He will withhold punishment, often for some time. The Apostle gives several pictures of this in verses 4-6. through You may have noticed while we were reading that verse 4 through where we stopped in verse 10 is all one long sentence. It's true in the original as well. So these examples should be taken together uh, to support Peter's claim. Angels who left their appointed place rebelled against the Creator. And there seems to be a focus here on sensuality. So we may have an allusion to Genesis 6, the immorality of the sons of God. Very, very challenging to determine. But the point is that angels are not exempt from the judgment of God. The ancient world was cleansed through the flood. Sodom and Gomorrah, they lived in excess, all prosperity, indulging, indulging all of uh, the lusts that they could imagine. They became a model of God's judgment. And friends, there are many who believe that this is just, that God's judgment for sin is just a myth some confusing teaching in the Bible. That's not going to actually happen. But you have to work really hard to ignore the biblical witness from Genesis to Revelation that this judgment is on God's calendar. Jesus speaks of this coming day when He says, whoever denies Me before others, I will deny before My Father in Heaven. That is a chilling thought. I have ears to hear. It was so important that Peter spends so much of his last farewell letter talking to the church about this day that is yet to come. So I wonder, does this, does this sadden us? Are, are we grieved? Just as it says how Lot was grieved over the lawlessness of those around him. I think we can get angry. In fact, I know we can because that's my, my typical response. Um, we have no problem pointing out, you know, the world's going to hell in a handbasket, but do we grieve this in our hearts? Does it actually move us with compassion toward others, willing to listen, empathize? We need to be cautious so we just don't, you know, speak our peace on some platform and feel we've done our, our duty for Jesus. This should grieve us. When Jude refers to Sodom, this is Jude now, he uses them as an example of of those who are saved for destruction. But Peter's doing something a little bit different. He is actually making a contrast. We see judgment, but we also see deliverance. So the ancient world perishes in the flood, but Noah and his family are spared. Sodom and Gomorrah burn, but Lot is delivered. So God has made a distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous. He's done this in the past, so He's more than capable of doing this now. And then we have, we have all these if statements. And Peter finally gets to that then uh, statement in verse 9. God knows those who are His. Brothers and sisters, take comfort in the face of false teachers and the fallout of their teaching. Their ideas. John Stone Street, president of the, the Colson Center, he'll often say, ideas have consequences and bad ideas have victims. 
usually the most vulnerable around us. The Lord knows. He will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing. And He will preserve and rescue His people. So even in the face of such fallout, the church can wake up day after day after day in confidence and hope that God will see her through. That we will be grieved by various trials. Peter says this in his first letter. And here, those various trials includes resisting false teachers and the allurement of of their ideas. But the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and temptation. Just let the sovereign goodness of that sink in. The Lord knows. We don't have a clue. The Lord knows how to rescue from trial. He knows how to rescue those who are are beaten and abused for His name. He knows how to rescue those who are cast off and exiled. He knows how to rescue the relationship that looks doomed. He knows how to rescue the child that has wandered. He knows how to rescue His own who are so steeped in fear and entitlement and self-worship that we deny the very name of our God. He knows how to rescue and He has done this through Jesus. In the fullness of time, God sent His Son coming to our rescue. Jesus is the righteous One that God delivers and by whom God delivers His church. And if He has rescued us from the trials, the attack, the guilt of our sin, then He will deliver us and keep us to the very end. God knows how to rescue and reclaim the righteous. Again in Romans 2, the Apostle Paul says that it is the riches of God's kindness, His patience that's meant to lead to repentance, to lead away from punishment, to peace. The peace of knowing the Lord Jesus and new life in Him. So we're rightly warned here by by Peter's farewell letter But you have all these inserts of God's grace that lead us to worship. The Lord knows how to rescue. He has shown us this in Christ. Jesus will come to judge. That that day is coming soon. But He has come to seek and to save the lost. Will you look to Him for the first time in repentance and faith? Will you rest in Him from this day on, through every trial, Jesus has prepared a table for the righteous. Not who are righteous in themselves, but the righteous in union with Him by faith. And that table is before us this morning. We're going to, to celebrate the life we have in Christ. The peace that is ours through the One who took the punishment. Peter describes took the punishment for the unrighteous, for you, for me. Hallelujah, what a Savior. All right, let's pray together. Lord, we are grateful that You have given us this warning. May we be attentive. Attentive to the the way of truth. The Word that You have given to us. Lord, we need Your help in this. Because there is so much that looks so good and sounds so good and the the allurements around us. Lord, ground us in the way of truth in these ancient paths 
that you've entrusted to us. We thank you for feeding us through your word and we thank you now for this table that feeds us, that nourishes our faith in the Lord Jesus. Oh Christ, you are present by your spirit with us, giving us more of yourself. Hallelujah. What a Savior. We rejoice in you. In Jesus' name, amen.